Did you know that this past year, 4,300, 4,300, 4,300 members of our family, our Christian family, members of the Church of Jesus Christ around the world, were put to death for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These aren't the dark ages. We're not living in some uncivilized tribal region, you know, five centuries before Jesus. This is 2019. And yet just last year, as the statistics came in, we discovered that 4,300 Christians were persecuted for their faith and put to death for their faith on planet earth in this seemingly modern age. Is that not shocking to you? Large portions of the Christian church are persecuted across the Islamic world. Large portions of the Christian church are persecuted in atheistic China. Large portions of the Christian church are persecuted in Asia. I think, well, that's, a, that's the other side of the world. We're in the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> We've got the Pacific on one side, and we got the Atlantic on the other. We're modern. We're civilized. We didn't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Really? Really? Have you noticed that, alarmingly, there is fast-growing hostility toward Christianity in our own country? Anybody notice that or is it just me? Fast-growing hostility toward Christian morality in our own country. Virtues like chastity and purity and honesty and holiness and strong families. Those have been relabeled as evil. And that which is evil, that which previously was done in the dark, in secret, has been dragged out into the light. And it's being called good. The Baptist minister, Canadian Baptist minister, Steve Long, has met with our current prime minister three times. And he recently reported that the prime minister told him, quote, Evangelical Christians are the worst part of Canadian society. End quote. Well, this shouldn't surprise us because clearly the government's conduct towards Bible-believing Christians certainly seems to support this, does it not? And the reality is that if things do not change, there is, and I'm a measured man, I'm not an extremist, but I believe this to be 100% true. If things don't change, there is a coming martyrdom that awaits us all. It will likely go from harsh penalties first, which is going to weed out so much of the church. The weak need, the self-focused, the self-absorbed, the materialist, they're going to be gone. Then there will be imprisonment and then there will be death. I'm not a conspiracist, 
But I believe this could happen in my lifetime, probably not in the latter half of my life, but really soon. So the question that's been rattling around in my head, and that I would like to present to you as my dear brothers and sisters today, because I love you, and I know that you live in the same world that I do, is this question. Are you prepared to pay the cost, the full cost, of being a disciple of Christ? Are you prepared? You're like, cost? I thought salvation was free. Well, forgiveness is free, but following is costly. Salvation is free. Justification is free. But sanctification is costly. It's costly, folks. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ taught us this clearly. Get on over to the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Third Gospel. Find your way to the ninth chapter. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put it up on the screen. What we see in Luke chapter 9 is Jesus teaching his immediate disciples. This is like 2,000 years ago about the cost of discipleship. But this is a message that every generation of Christians needs to hear. And we need to take seriously. And I'm just telling you straight up, there's probably going to be very little of what I say today that any Christian in the room is going to disagree with. I just know that. Most of you are going to be like, yeah, I agree, I agree, I agree. It's the application that's hard. It's the application that's hard. It's going out of here and actually putting it into practice. That's where we're all going to struggle, but we're going to pray that the Lord would, would strengthen us and give us the courage and the ability and the capacity by his Holy Spirit to put into practice what our Lord and Savior is teaching us. Check this out. Jesus said, And he said to all, so this doesn't apply to pastors, folks, and missionaries, and seminary grads. This is for the whole collection of Christ's disciples around the world. And he said to all, if anyone, are you part of the anyone? Yes, you are. If anyone would come after me, let him, look at the list, deny himself and take up his cross daily, not just on Sunday mornings, not just on the weekends, take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Thank God for that. And what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man, this is a reference to Jesus, be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Wow. This is a wake-up call for us. This is not a pep rally. This is not a, you've got the power sermon. This isn't a, you got it in yourself You just need to realize your full potential. That's not what this sermon's about. That's not the message of the gospel. Because I'll tell you this, by ourselves, we will fail. We will fail. We're just too weak. We need to remember our brother Peter. You know that great apostle in the early church? I love Peter. He's just so raw. He's so honest. Peter said, 
Peter said, Lord, I'll never deny you. No way, no how. I will never deny you. Previous to that, he had said, when Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? Well, you are the Christ, the son of a living God. Jesus is like two thumbs up. You got it, Peter. This is a man who declared his faith, put it into words. He's kind of the first disciple that seemed to have got it, at least if we follow his verbal declarations. You're the Christ, the son of a living God. I'll never deny you. And then what happened? He denied Jesus. He denied Jesus. He denied Jesus again. Know how we like, notice how we like to throw Judas under the bus? What about Peter? Now, the difference is, of course, Peter repented and went to Christ. Judas went to religion for repentance and found nothing but scorn and in his hopelessness killed himself. But just think about that. You want to be like Peter? You want to leave the conference today? You're like, man, I, I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to be tough. I'm going to speak up. You will fail if Jesus is not living large in your life. You will fail. So what does this teach us? Check this out. God doesn't call capable people. God doesn't call the capable. He calls those willing to count the cost. And there's a difference between the two. God doesn't call the capable. He counts those that are willing to count. He calls those willing to count the cost. Another way of saying this would be following Jesus is not primarily about what you do. The most prominent question we've received from this conference is the question, what do I do now? What do I do? 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 How do I respond? What do I do? What do I do? I've been convicted. What do I do? There's a place for doing things for Christ, of course. But more fundamental than doing anything is asking yourself the question, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to give up? Are you willing to get out of the way and let Jesus live large through your life, even to the point of death? Are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to allow Jesus to fill you up and use you as a vessel, a manifestation, if you will, of his presence and power in this world? That's going to accomplish a whole lot more than what you might do. Let Christ do what Christ needs to do through you. This is the call of Christ. Now, let me just explain a few things about the context of Luke 9. It's a lengthy chapter. There's several episodes that take place in this chapter. I mean, you could preach a whole sermon series just from Luke 9. There's all kinds of stuff in there. But there's, there's, a, there's a theme, I think. So earlier on in Luke 9... Jesus sends out the apostles. He's like, I want you to go out. I'm empowering you. Don't take your tunics. Don't take any money. I'm going to provide for you. Just get out there and start doing ministry. So they go out and do ministry. And then the second episode is Herod is kind of interacting and he's trying to figure out who Jesus is and he can't quite figure out who Jesus is. So he's asking questions about Jesus' identity, but he can't figure it out. Then Jesus' disciples come back and they feed the 5,000. So he sends them out. Herod's asking questions. They return, he feeds the 5,000, and then we have Peter's confession in Luke chapter 9. You are the Christ, the son of a living God. Then Jesus predicts, predicts his own death, and then later we have the transfiguration. So if you just kind of think about all those episodes that are found in Luke chapter 9, 
what could we say is the overarching theme of the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke? What's the overall theme? Luke 9, I would argue, is an identity passage. It's largely about answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? But it's not an academic question. It's not just a, who is Jesus so we can get our doctrinal statement right. It has implications. It's an identity passage with discipleship implications that naturally and necessarily and inevitably flow out of it. Do you hear that? It's about who Jesus is. When you understand who Jesus is, that's going to affect you. That's going to affect how you live, how you act, how you perceive Christ in relationship to how you perceive yourself. Who is Jesus? It's all about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the Christ, the son of a living God. Okay. Well, I'm following him. So what does that mean? What does it mean to follow him? And Jesus teaches us how to follow him. There's three things I want to kind of focus in on. The first is following Jesus. You know what that means? It means I deny self. That's what it means. It means I deny self. You know, self-control is a fruit of the spirit and self-control is a sin. How can that be? Two different uses of the words. Self-control, being bridled by the Holy Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit is a fruit, a manifestation of the Spirit's work in our lives. But self-control, I am going to control myself. I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to rule myself. I will sit on the throne of my life. Thank you very much. That's a sin. Jesus is calling us to set aside control of self. In fact, to deny self in order that we might give ourselves up for Christ. Now, in order for this to be possible in my life and in yours as followers of Jesus, we need to adopt a certain mindset. Part of our mindset needs to be that we're stewards, we're managers. This life is not my own. I belong to God. My mouth belongs to God. My mind belongs to God. My body belongs to God. When I was sitting in the front, getting ready to preach in the worship, I was praying to the Lord, Lord, use my mouth for your honor. Use my mind for your honor. I want to disappear. I want to fade away. I want God to loom large through me. I want to be a steward for your honor and glory. This is what we need to keep reminding ourselves. Deny self, deny self, deny self. And let Jesus Christ shine through you. Second part of that mindset is I was bought with a price. I was bought with a price. The God of the universe, the one who brought the world into existence, the eternal word, the divine logos, the son of God, the eternal son, Jesus Christ himself, the anointed one, the Messiah, condescended from heaven, was incarnated in human flesh, didn't have to do that, lived among us and paid the ultimate price for my transgressions. There's no greater message. There's no greater example of love and mercy and grace than that. When the creator gives himself up for the created, are you kidding me? 
Maybe you're an artist, you've painted some pictures, or you're a carpenter, you've framed some sheds or some houses, or like fixing cars, you've restored a vehicle, and these are things you appreciate, but would any of you give your lives to save something you created? Would you give your life to save your, save your garden shed, your classic vehicle? Would you give your life to save something you painted as much as you? No. It's like, I, I'm, I'm the creator of those things. I'm superior to those things. How much greater is there a gap between us and the divine creator? And yet the divine creator condescended and he lived among us. And then he allowed himself to be slapped around and abused and falsely lied about by creatures because he knew they're ignorant and sinful. But in his love, he sought us out. And he paid the ultimate price for my sins. That's incredible. I'm a steward. I was bought with a price. He rescued me. And I don't live for self-pleasure, but for God's glory. What is the mission of God, church? The glory of God. It's not the glory of me. It's not ultimately the salvation of me. That's a byproduct. But the mission of God is the glory of God. And God will guard his glory at all costs even though it may not always be evident in the moment, God will guard his glory at all costs. We live in a time when people are trying to silence the church. Shut up, sit down, get out of the way. The threats are starting to come. You want to be fined. You want to lose your job. You want to lose out in some opportunities. You want to go to jail. Sit down, shut up, stay silent. Don't say anything. And the response of a large portion of the church of Jesus Christ is, oh, we're afraid we're going to go to jail. We're afraid we're going to get fined. You know when we know persecution has won? As soon as you go silent. As soon as you go silent, persecution has accomplished its task. Done. It's won. As soon as the church is more concerned about going to jail, more concerned about losing their jobs, more concerned about looking foolish at work, more concerned about getting handcuffs thrown on them. Persecution's won. I wonder, people ask the question, I wonder how I would respond when persecution comes. Folks, that's it's already happened. You already know. Have you been silent when you see blatant sin being promoted? When you see lies being taught to children, to confused people? Have you been silent? You already know the answer. You lost. And persecution won. This is not following Jesus Christ. And you know why we do that? Like, why is it that so many people are walking around in fear of what's going to happen? Good old-fashioned, good old-fashioned, good old-fashioned self-protection. That's what it's about. Good old-fashioned self-protection. I'm going to protect myself first and foremost. And maybe if I get around to it, I'll load the kids up in the minivan and creep into a church on Sunday when no unbelievers are around, and I'm going to pretend that I actually love Jesus. No. What we're doing here needs to be extended out into our Monday lives, our Tuesday lives, our Wednesday lives. A lack of self Denial leads to def uh, the default into self-protection. And when we self-protect, we inevitably buckle under pressure. Jesus is very clear. Following me requires you deny 
yourself. Secondly, following Jesus, you know what that means? It means I suffer. It means I suffer. Jesus calls us to take up our crosses. What does that mean? Oh, I'm going to go get myself a nice fancy gold cross and a chain, and I'm going to wear it around, and hopefully all my coworkers are going to get saved because they see my fancy, you know, $500 gold cross. That's taking up my cross. Well, maybe there will be some witnessing opportunities that flow out of that. I don't know. I've never had one. But I can tell you this. Taking up your cross really is about suffering like Jesus did. Giving up your life for the glory of God. You know why that is such a challenge in the West? Now, most of us are born in the West. I know some have come from the East, but most of us are born in the West. All of us are living in the West. And we just know our day and age, our generation, we're used to our rhythms and routines, and some of us maybe haven't studied a lot of history. But you know what? The problem with the West is that we have so much easy living. It's just so easy. We're so soft. Let me give you some examples of that. One of my kids is graduating from high school, and he goes into the guidance department. Guidance teacher says, this is in a, in a high school. It's being paid by the taxpayers. Guidance, what do, you, what do you want to do? I want to go into the trades. When are you going to start? I want to start like next week. Why would you do that? Why don't you travel the world for a year? Just enjoy yourself. Really? You're a guidance teacher? And your advice to this guy who's gone through 11, 12 years of school is, oh, why don't you just run around the world and have fun? That was nothing, with, nothing wrong with traveling. But really? Let me give you another example of that. What would you say is the surest way not to sell your house in Windsor and Essex County? What's the most important thing to have in your house to sell it in Windsor and Essex County? I would say an air conditioning unit. Right? You've got to have air conditioning. Like we can't survive without air conditioning. But those of us that have been around for a little while, do you remember back in the 70s? Anybody around in the 70s? We didn't have air conditioning. Maybe some rich people did. We had those big old turbo fans that probably robbed us of half of our hearing. And we'd sweat it out all night in July and August with this big old fan that didn't do a whole lot. Wake up in the morning all sweaty and everything else. That was normal. My own father-in-law that grew up in a German colony in Mexico was telling me recently, and this shows how good I have it, that he, they didn't even have a refrigerator in Mexico. Until he was like 18, I'm like, how is that even possible? He's like, fine. I'm like, really? How does that work? We have our car comforts. You know, in the old days, again, you get in the car, you, middle of July, you're going on summer vacation with your parents, and you, you're pat, practically vomiting because of the smell of like hot vinyl. And I'm like, I got a solution for you. Here's like one trident mint. That's how many we got. Like one trident mint a week. Maybe a crossword puzzle. Now you have all this in-car entertainment systems and sunroofs and tinted windows. And the kids are never bored in the car anymore. So comfortable. Someone else pays for our degrees. We just assume that's normal. You got students at the university picketing because we're not paying for their degrees. Do you know how abnormal that is? I should pay for your education after you've already gone through like 14 years of tax-funded education. We owe you another degree with no guarantee you're even going to use it. It's ridiculous. 
because we live a life of such excessive ease. Now we have our food. Packaged food is the, is the way to go. They're telling us now that in the last several generations, our jaw size is starting to shrink because we're not using our jaws. We don't, we don't chew difficult food anymore. It's all got to be soft. It's like, oh, that potato chip's too hard. Give me a softer one. No. Can't hold a cup of coffee anymore without some sort of a little comfy, cozy thing on it because our skin is so thin. Right? People are getting ill. Why? Because they're not going outside. No, no exposure to the sun. You know, oh, it's a little windy. My eyes are itchy. We live in a world marked by such ease, and I, I'm part of that. And then we hear Jesus say, oh, I want you to take up your cross and follow me? And the best we can come up with is a gold cross on a chain? And well, what a joke. Jesus, you want me to suffer? Say what? <laughs> I'm out of here. What we need to do is we need to adjust our expectations of what it means to be a Christian. Maybe you didn't think you were signing up for this. But you're actually signing up for a life of suffering. But I'll tell you this. The suffering will give way to eternal glory. The ease and the pleasure in the now will give way to eternal damnation. So in the moment, we might suffer. But just for a moment. For the sake of eternal glory, that's what makes it all worthwhile to the glory and honor of God and to our own benefit. And then Jesus' third statement is, hey, I want you to follow me. Deny yourself. Suffer for me. And then it means uh, I keep following Jesus. Now, in order to understand more fully what that looks like, you can just kind of scoot down in the same chapter to verses 57 through 62. Kind of puts it in a little bit more practical light. There's three individuals that Jesus meets on the road. I'm going to give them all names in a moment, but let's just read this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, that is Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. That's a pretty good statement. I like that. But Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then we have another person. To another, he said, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my house. I'm seeing three different sort of archetypes of humanity here when it comes to following Jesus. Three people meet Jesus. The first one I'll call the enthusiast. Pretty enthusiastic, eh? Come to Jesus and the enthusiast says, I will follow you wherever you go. I think it was probably something like that. I will follow you wherever you go, Lord. Very spiritual. Very enthusiastic, very heartfelt. It's the kind of person we'd probably all like. Kind of a cheerleader Christian. Very enthusiastic. Jesus, of course, has the ability to discern the heart, right? He doesn't just listen to the words. He knows the heart. And we don't know what the results were from this person. We're not told. But 
what's fascinating is Jesus tries to dissuade him. Basically says, do you know what you just said? Have you ever seen a fox? It's got a nice place to live in. I don't have a nice place to live in. You ever seen a bird in a comfy little nest? That's not the way of Christ. And Jesus is talking less, of course, about physical comforts and more about this whole life of self-sacrifice for Jesus. Do you realize that in this, this enthusiasm that you're declaring is going to lead to some giving up, some sacrifice, some hardship? See, the thing is, is while we should be enthusiastic for Jesus, we need to make sure that our enthusiasm is not emotionalism. We need to be driven by truth, by sober-mindedness, but understanding what Jesus is actually calling us to. We need to count the cost. The second person will call him the delayer. The delayer. The delayer says, I'll come, but first, and then he Here's what Jesus does. Um, This guy comes to Jesus and he picks probably one of the more emotional, more weighty responsibilities a person could ever have, like burying your own father? How could Jesus possibly say, how could Jesus possibly not give this person a few more weeks off? (laughs) Now, by the way, this would have been about a a year delay because in Jewish culture, the person goes into into the tomb then when they've decayed down to bones, the bones are then taken and put into an ossuary box. So what he's actually saying to Jesus is, I'd like to follow you, but give me about another year to prep up for it. So this isn't like two weeks off or a weekend away. This is, this is a, a long request. He's the delayer. And so Jesus basically says, let, let, them, let, the, uh, let other people bury the dead. I want you to follow me now. Think about this in your own life. How many times in our lives have we said similar things? Like, I'm going to follow Jesus, but i got to get married first because, of course, I suck if I'm single. And there's no way God could possibly use single people. Oh, yeah, we got Paul. Sorry about that. I guess he could. Um, but i got to get married. That's my priority right now. I mean, it's, it takes a lot of energy to woo a woman in, these gener- in this time and age. It's expensive to save up for a wedding. So give me a little time, Jesus. i got to get this taken care of. Or, well, now that I am married, I realize my spouse needs me. i got to be home like eight nights a week. Because I read a James Dobson book or something that said I should. Or when I finish school. When I finish school, i got another degree to take care of. Then, then I'll really kind of lean into the whole Christian thing. But then work takes over. Or then, what, maybe I'll wait till I retire, because you have no idea how busy I am, Lord. I mean, I'm, I'm really busy here. Working 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. I got, you know, hockey three nights a week. And, you know, it's, it takes me like an hour in the Starbucks drive through every week cumulatively to buy my lattes. And, you know, it just kind of adds up. And you wait till I retire. And then you meet retired people and they're, they're never bored. Like they're always busy. There's always something to fill your schedule. Jesus says, follow me. Here's a principle that I found super helpful in my life. I don't know if I was taught it or modeled it or by God's spirit, it just kind of came to me. I don't even know. And I probably wasn't even conscious of it for many, many years. But I I would say that many people I meet that want to serve Jesus often struggle with the whole idea of, and they actually actually use this language, like how do I fit Jesus in to my schedule? I think that's a bad paradigm. That's a bad equation. 
I think the biblical equation is you do what God has called you to do, and then you fit your marriage in, and you fit your kids in, and you fit your job in, and you fit your entertainment in. You, you make it come after, and you keep the calling of God central. Like, that doesn't sound Christian. Yes, it does. Jesus actually says, are you prepared to deny your mother, your father, your brother, your sister to follow me? But the modern church, in reaction to delinquent families, has taught people the opposite. People run around thinking their marriage is of greater priority than Jesus. No, it's not. Raising their kids is of greater priority than Jesus. That's not in the Bible. Jesus must always be at the center. Now, of course, Jesus needs to leak out and into the marriage, the family, the job, and all that kind of stuff. But it's, the, it's a mindset thing because every person that's ever lived has the same number of hours in their day. Everybody. How to... High-functioning people accomplish more. Everything else comes second. Jesus comes first. Everything else comes second. Jesus comes first. And then we have a third person that we encounter in this text. I'll call them the homesick. Person says, well, just give me a little time to go and say farewell to Ma and Pa and my brother, my, you know, my cousin, and oh yeah, my grandma, and I better go see my grandpa too, and you know, hugs and kisses, hugs and kisses, hugs and kisses. I think what we see here is a person that's tied to domestic affairs, and they're too tied to domestic affairs to really lean in. It's like hugs and kisses, everybody. I'm going to follow Jesus. Let's have a little party, a little home. What do they call them? Not homecoming. I don't know, home going. What do you call it when someone like leaves the home? What's that kind of a party? A farewell party, there's the word. Okay. I've never had one, so a farewell party. She's like, forget about that, just come and follow me now. In verse 62, Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So he just kind of carries forward this whole harvesting analogy of scripture, like fall. Being with Jesus and following Jesus is kind of like running a plow across the field. I know this is like totally old school, an old school illustration, but you're running the plow across the field and you're like looking back, I kind of miss you, Mom. I kind of miss you, Dad. I wish I was back in college. Those were the best years of my life. Jesus is like, forget about the past. Move forward. Today's a new day. Follow me in the moment. Follow me in the present. Now, if we go back up to verses 23 to 26, we have our motivators. And there's three motivators I see here. The first is, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to gain it will forfeit their soul. Who's ever ashamed of Christ, Christ will be ashamed of you. That should motivate a life of radical followership. Just kind of breaking those down. The first one is, you lose what you try to hold on to. Think about that for a little bit. As soon as you go like this, whoop, it's mine, you lose it. So we talk about cupped hand living in our church instead of closed fist living. We steward it. We care for what God has given to us. Time, talents, and treasures, we do not go like this. As soon as you try to own it, to hold on to it, you lose it. Second would be, speaking of gain and forfeiture, You have more than a wallet to fill. You have a soul that needs to be taken care of. 
Your children have souls that need to be taken care of. It's not bad for your kid to excel in math or science or art or whatever. But don't be too proud of that. Don't give them too many backpats for that. Don't give them too much money for that. Praise them when they are sacrificially giving of their time, talents, and treasures for the cause of the kingdom. That's disciple-making, parenting. That's what it's all about. And then we have, if you're ashamed of Christ, Christ, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be ashamed of you. So what does that tell us? There's going to be horses in heaven, but there won't be chickens. Cowards aren't going to make it. Because cowardice is contrary to the very definition of discipleship. Like that sounds like works-oriented salvation. No, it sounds like by their fruits you shall know them theology. So let me leave you then with six points of application. Six ways that we can put ourselves in a position in our lives to really count the cost, and live large for Jesus Christ. Now, you're probably going to guess the first one before I even say it. You're probably thinking about it all right now because it is our priority. It starts with a P, ends with Ray. Anybody can guess? Pray. We need to pray. We're calling upon God to manifest himself in our lives and our world and do what we can't. So we're praying. Secondly, we speak up. You mean in prayer? No, we speak up. I I am absolutely convinced, absolutely convinced that there are more people out there than we think that actually agree with the Christian worldview, even non-believers, and they're sick and tired of the lies and the garbage and the ridiculousness that's being spouted off in our schools and in our government halls, etc. But they don't have as much skin in the game as the Christian church does. And we're kind of parroting them. It's not saying anything. Speak up. Just say something. Obviously, you want to be gracious and winsome, but be intelligent. Say something. Do you know how much of a radical difference it would make just in our own city? If the 20,000 or I don't know how many Christians are in Windsor. Let's just say 20,000 Christians that believe in this live in Windsor. If we all started saying something, they couldn't build enough jail cells for us. They didn't have enough police to arrest us. That would make a huge difference. But if it's just this big mouth speaking, or Tony speaking, or the odd person speaking up, what, what's society going to think? The church as a whole agrees with us. These are just a couple wackos, a couple weirdos. But if a church rises up and says, enough's enough, let's hashtag that, by the way. Enough is enough. I believe with all my heart we could make a real difference. Third, Tony talked yesterday about social Marxism taking over our institutions, and they've done it. My sister's in the so, or my uh, daughter's in the social work program at the University of Windsor. Her one professor is a, a flag-carrying Marxist. He just says it. It's part of her exam this past week. Comment on Marxism in the social work department. This is not abnormal. This is normal. We've just kind of given it up. Let's just let all the unbelievers take over the universities and colleges. It's nice to see more Christians take over the universities and colleges. Not so that we can Christianize the world at the expense of the gospel, but so that we can speak God's moral truth into people's lives who desperately need it in order for the gospel to even make any sense. 
If that doesn't work, the fourth point is let's start our own institutions. Let's educate our own children. There's a radical thought. People often ask me, what's the best form of schooling? Well, we could talk about that extensively. You got no schooling, probably not a good idea. Homeschooling, Catholic schooling, public schooling, Christian schooling. Whatever you do, know this. Every parent in the room know this. When you stand before God, the only one that's going to give a full account for your children is you. You can farm it out. You can hire this person. You can send them. You can pay this board, this board, this individual. You can bring in a tutor. But at the end of the day, biblically, I'm responsible for my kids. I'm responsible for my kids. It's my job to educate them. I can hire Tony to do it. I can hire my brother to do it. I can hire my best friend to do it. But at the end of the day, I'm responsible for my kids. And I think a lot of parents don't think about that. They're thinking about what schooling choice is best. Have those conversations, but know this. At the end of the day, you're responsible. You will stand before God and give an account for what your children were taught. So make sure you're being intelligent and deliberate and wise and thoughtful and engaged in whatever path you choose. It's on you, not on me. It's on you. Fifth, influence the people around you. Talk to people. Engage in conversation. You know, ha- have the dialogue. Get involved in positions of influence in your school or your workplace. And then sixth and finally, at the end of the day, be prepared to go underground. It's increasingly we're hearing that the fastest growing church in the world is in China. And it's not just numerical, it's like percentage. Fastest growing church. Like, how is that possible? It's illegal. It is. There's like a couple churches in Beijing that have the government stamp of approval. Of course, the communist government, check this out, her atheists trained the pastors for those churches. Is that not kind of weird? What kind of pastors are you going to get out of that? But the under, what we call the underground church, not literally meeting underground, but in warehouses and apartment buildings and storefronts, whatever, fast growing. Now, the problem is there's a lot of cultism because there's not a lot of education. But the church is exploding in China because people realize atheism doesn't work. Atheism means there's no meaning. There's no value. You can treat people however you want. It doesn't work. But the time might come very soon. We have to go underground. We have to meet privately, secretly. Again, this is not conspiratorial stuff. This is reality. But in all of this, we need not fear Put that aside. Just, I'm not going to be afraid. Forget it. Not going to be afraid. Not going to be self-protective. I'm going to be confident in Christ. And here's a passage I'd like to leave you with, sort of as an anthem of hope. It's a passage that basically says, it's found in the Psalm, Psalm 112, verses 1 to 2. It's an anthem for God's people that each generation can make a difference. And we can actually stem the tide. We can actually, for generations, push back evil. Push it back and stand for righteousness. Here's what it says in Psalm 112, verses 1 to 2, and here's how I'll end. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who who greatly delights in his commandments. You're praising him. You fear him. You love his word. Here's God's promise. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. That's what I want in my lifetime.